Today we're looking at um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and in chapter 2. So we asked the question last week, what what are we made for? What are we created for? And we find out in Ephesians chapter 1, we're created, we're chosen in him, created to be holy and blameless. And that the power or the ability to be holy and blameless is all uh, wrapped up in the seal and the uh, and the down payment of the Holy Spirit of God. So I hope that you've been thinking about that this week, uh, each day, just asking God to reveal what this means um, to you and to me and to our church as well. Well, today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. It's still a letter, so the letter was not written in chapters, but it moves on. Paul moves on and uh, the question I want to ask at the beginning are what are the threats that the Ephesian Christians face and how can they face them and defeat them and to what purpose so what are the threats that the Ephesian Christians face and therefore what are the threats that we face and how can we face them and defeat them and to what purpose well at the time Paul was writing you remember that he's looking back over a 10-year period probably and very much in his mind will be and I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody and you feel like it's the last time that you're going to talk to them face to face and what you say counts to you probably more than it does to the people you're talking to but Paul has expressed his concern that um, there will be threats from outside the church and threats from inside the church. And remember, the church is still young, uh, almost like a toddler. And there's a kind of beauty and naivety about uh, about a church that's still young. Churches that are young often make glaring mistakes, um, but by the grace of God, they move on and they find victory uh, in that. And sometimes there's pain in growth, isn't there? The threats from outside the church were obvious. Paul describes them in Acts 20 as threats from savage wolves. Have you ever watched a documentary about how wolves hunt? They're, They're always hungry. Their prey is a matter of life and death to them. So being sure to kill the prey is important. They organise their whole pack to hunt as a team and they work tirelessly to overcome the prey. They can commit the job of hurting the prey, of hunting the prey, sorry, even if it's a lot larger than themselves. And wolves are savage hunters. At the time of the early church in Ephesus, we know that there were two enemies who could be described as savage wolves. The first was based in this Jewish synagogue, the Jews Many of them hated the teaching of Paul and the apostles. They were committed to bringing the church down. And in nearly every city where there was a synagogue, they made trouble against the church. And this is because so many of the early Christians were originally Jews. And they they were changing. They were becoming followers of the way. Still Jews, but followers of the way. In other words, Jews who followed Jesus. And Paul and his gang of church planters, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Priscilla and Aquila, They were originally Jews, although I think Timothy was not, and we'll see why later. um, And as Jews, they weren't trying to destroy the synagogue. They were working from the old scriptures. They were bringing good news. But this good news brought a threat to the synagogue. 
and it was enough to take serious action. So Jewish leaders all around the known world stirred up trouble against Christians. And when they had power, they used stones and weapons to kill the followers of the way. So there was a real savage threat. And where they had less influence, they did their best to stir up trouble with the authorities. Now, the threat was real. It was physical and it was otherwise real. But there was also the threat in Ephesus of the idol makers. Now, they hated what Paul had brought as well. A serious depression had happened in the business of Ephesus. Artemis was going out of business. The crowd of haters was committed to death and physical destruction to, in the name of the goddess because they thought that they were fighting for their own survival. They were an ever-present danger and a danger to the Ephesian Christians. And today is no different. The Christian church faces persecution on a terrifying scale. I read recently in the Daily Express of all publications a report which had been made by Open Doors suggesting that there are more than 245 million followers of Jesus. That's your brothers and sisters and mine facing constant threat and persecution in countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, China, even in Hindu India. Uh, North African Christians are facing threats and Libya ranks fourth highest on the index of places where to be a follower of Christ is to risk losing your life. These are our brothers and sisters. Daily they face harrowing bullying, loss of earnings, court cases, blasphemy charges, death, simply because they name Christ. And this would be bad. But Paul says in Acts 20, and I'll say this deliberately and carefully, but it's the threat from inside the church that's the most damaging. So not necessarily the threat of death, which obviously is an unimaginable horror to people, but the, the threat of the church itself from tearing itself apart. If we think about um, what was happening within the church, we know that the ex-Jews or Messianic Jews had a habit of thinking themselves better than the non-Jews. And so sometimes they put demands on the Gentiles. Paul had traveled with Timothy, as I said before, not, not a Jew by birth, but to introduce the good news. And before he did this, he had Timothy circumcised just so that he'd be able to look the Jewish people in the eye and say, yeah, I'm not inferior. I, I have gone through what you've gone through. Though the action had no value in and of itself, says Paul. In addition to the Jew-Gentile problem within the church, there was a constant problem of people who just took people away from the truth. And so, I mean, very soon after the good news spread around the world, untruth grew up from inside, you know, like in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares, the, the weeds grew up and... Um, we see that uh, some have been very persistent untruths. Uh, the work of the Gnostics was one of the worst things to happen. They said two things that were really crippling to Christianity, wherever Christians listened to them. Firstly, they said, you can't actually know God in this world because God is spiritual. So he's made the spiritual world a kind of antithesis or an opposite of God, where food and sex and living life in general, they are inherently wrong and evil. And so the second thing they said was, Jesus couldn't be God if he was human. He couldn't eat, he couldn't, you know, go to the toilet and things like that if, uh, and be God at the same time. 
Now, Gnosticism is very much like a sort of Buddhist philosophy, although maybe I'm being unfair there, but, you know, quite contrary to Christ, that the idea is that we've got to deny our bodies and that, uh, that, that everything about living here on earth is inherently evil. And uh, lots of people departed from the truth. They had a different understanding of who Jesus was. They had a different understanding of God. And they said, because God proved his grace by, and sorry, and, and another um, uh, early wrong thought was on the opposite of this, which is that uh, people were giving themselves permission to sin because they were saying, well, God's grace is proved by my sinfulness. So if I sin more, his grace abounds more. And we know that was just an excuse to live according to lust and passion. So these fights which threaten to tear the church apart are either because Christians thought themselves superior to other Christians or because uh, they had a peculiar view of, of God and Christ or because they just wanted to give themselves permission to sin. And uh, <coughs> our service to Christ might be costly it might be like putting all our eggs in one basket but it is a service which leads to life so paul here in uh, his um letter to the ephesian church or the uh, church in ephesus the different meetings around ephesus city reminds them that we have life in Christ, that uh, we um, that we can love and we can be loved. And that's worth dying for, isn't it? The danger of falling away from good teaching and from accepting what the Bible says is the danger of finding nothing to live for. So, yes, there were threats from outside, but if the church started to tear itself up from within, because of wrong thinking, then there was nothing to live or to die for in the first place. So Paul says, remember who you were, remember what has changed from what you were, and remember who you are. Who are we? Paul reminds the Ephesians, and we follow suit, that the Ephesians were dead. They'd been dead. The words he uses suggest they were like the walking dead, like being killed on the inside because of our transgressions and our sins. And we shouldn't forget this. If you watch um, someone like Steve Backnell, you know, who has a program about wildlife. And he, last week he was showing us that uh, there's a wasp that lays a, an egg which hatches into a larva inside of a living tarantula. And the egg, sorry, the larva eats the spider from inside but it doesn't kill it straight away. It doesn't eat its, um, its vital organs. On the other hand, once that egg and the larva are within the tarantula, the tarantula is effectively going to die. And it's like the walking dead, but it has no idea that it's being eaten. And that's such a true picture of the effect that sin has on us. It's, it's like a brain disease that we don't know that we have. Paul says, you were outside the blessing of being an Israelite. You were outside the blessing of being 
uh, right with God. You were uncircumcised, you were Gentiles, you were outsiders. Sin was killing you inside. What picture of the deadness of unbelief. And how do you feel about that? Is Paul being extreme? Well, not if you believe that being a Christian is undergoing new birth. As we read last week, becoming a believer is actually discovering what we're for. We're to live for God. And why? Because as Paul says in the second chapter of Ephesians, God is abundant in mercy. He loves mercy over justice. It's because of his grace that he's made us alive. And we read that it's out of his kindness that he calls us. He richly bestows on us his grace. So what's Paul doing here? He's reminding us who God is and why he acts towards us as he does, taking that picture of who we were and who we are and who we are to become. He's talking about life and that life comes through God's kindness, his grace and his mercy. I wonder if you've ever taken time to really understand this. God's character is a good one. No, it's a great one. He's wonderful in every way. He should punish us, but he treats us graciously. He should turn away from us, but he's kind towards us. Jesus says that those who are forgiven much, love much. And if we're aware of how far we were from God, that we were dead, we were the living dead, if we realise that God has taken pity on us and acted with mercy through Jesus, there is a good chance that we will not be swayed away from following him. But there's more. Not only are we no longer dead, but Paul says we've actually been made alive in Jesus. Alive. There's no, more, there's no story more moving in the Gospels than that of Lazarus. Think about it. There he was, dead and buried, and then brought back to life. Contrast the tears of the Lord Jesus Christ and the happiness, the joy in that family. Think of the wild happiness that comes from being made alive again. And it gets even better. Not only are we made alive in Christ, says Paul, but we are raised with Christ. We're raised in him and through him. And we are seated in the heavens. That means we haven't just survived death. We haven't just been plucked out of the, uh, out of the ocean, dr half drowned. Because that can leave us with a kind of trauma, can't it? You know, the, the idea that we were close to death can bring on a sort of PTSD. But actually, we've been brought into life in a privileged and elevated way. Uh, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm thinking of those four children in the Narnia tales, talking about being elevated. You know, they're elevated to their thrones, I think, in the castle called Care Paraval. And this is what Christ does for us. He gives us a view of the world from the top. This is one where we can have a perspective on the suffering of our lives and a perspective on the challenges. Martin Luther King said, said it well when he said, I have been to the mountaintop. He, of course, was following that wonderful picture of Moses or the disciples and Jesus as they watch him being transfigured. We're there with him, not just grateful to get away with something. And by the way, that gratitude is good 
and righteous, but it never produces disciples. We, we're not disciples because we keep saying, oh, I, I need to be thankful, I need to be thankful. No, we're, we're made disciples because we understand that we share with Christ in the heavenly places, that we're seated with him. And we need to see this as a reality, not thinking highly of ourselves, but thinking wonderfully about God's grace to us. And so we can ask God to reveal to us the position we have in the reality of the heavenly realms, heavenly people in a heavenly place. And Paul's careful to explain more. We who believe in Jesus have been brought near. We didn't have a hope, any hope, and yet he's torn down the dividing wall between us and God by dying for us. Let's never grow used to this idea. This is a wonderful idea and a, an idea about salvation. There's a book, uh, there were books I used to read by uh, a doctor who called himself Jungle Doctor. I think his name was Paul White. He worked in Tanzania many years ago and he had his own sort of parables about, you know, to illustrate the Christian faith. And one day, you know, he says the animals wake up and they find that there's a wall that prevents them from going where they want to go. And neither the giraffe can look over it, nor the elephant can crush it, nor can the lion leap it or the monkeys scale the wall. It's total separation. And that's us, says Paul, until Jesus himself comes to break that wall and to save us by his sacrifice. So Paul has one more thing to say about this separation. He suggests it's also a separation between people. And we know this, don't we? The law, the regulations that God sends separate us from him because we can't follow the law. But they also separate us from each other because it, it, um, the law is all about doing the right thing to our fellow Christian. And our failure separates people from each other. Um, we suffer guilt because we, we want what our neighbour has and we we think meanly about them and we tell lies and, and so on. So we're separated from each other, not just Jews and Gentiles, but person to person. But Paul says, you are no longer foreigners. That word, of course, having the um, power of saying you're outside of the people of Israel, you're no longer foreigners, says Paul. You're no longer separated by suspicion and tradition. Now you are fellow citizens with Christians, all part of the same godly household. So let's recap before looking at the last part of this great text. Paul has shown the Ephesians that they've come a long way from death to life because of God's kindness and the grace shown to us in Jesus. He's bestowed on each of us his heavenly citizenship and all in and through Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice and saviour. And we're back to our question, what are we for? What is God working on here? Why is he so keen to protect us and remind us who we are and what Jesus has done for us? Well, because God is in the business of building. God is in the building trade. His long-term plan is construction. We, God's people from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, we are part of a building that God has been creating for a long time. And it's interesting because it's a building that isn't out of nowhere. Unlike the work of creation where God speaks and it is, this building is a labour of love from the beginning of time. Now, from the Apostles' 
and the prophets, God has been constructing a building made of living stones. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So the foundations are not only strong, but they're essential. The foundations are eternal. God is building a sanctuary, a building for his pleasure and to reflect his greatness. And the bricks he uses to build the walls of the sanctuary are the believers. This is glorious, isn't it? We have to have a true idea of who we were. Yes, dead in trespasses and sins. But that's only a partial part of the story. The real story is that God is building us. He's building us into his permanent structure. This is a temple fit for a wonderful king. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes which is translated in different ways. But the, the way that I love to read it is this. He, God, God has made everything beautiful in its time. I want to take that picture and the word beautiful and place it on each of us at Bailey. Those who have followed Christ for a long time, those who are just beginning their new lives in Christ, God has made beauty. He's made you beautiful. He's planned a living temple and you are a beautiful part of it. You have a beautiful place in it. Your stone can't be removed from it once it's fixed in place. So enjoy this. It's God's intention that you enjoy the beauty of his life in Christ Jesus. It's his plan that nothing can divert you or threaten you or pluck you away. He's building something unimaginably beautiful and unimaginably powerful as he builds his church and you are part of it chosen to be holy and blameless and if you're feeling far away if something has rattled your peace if there's doubt troubling you today come to him and put it right ask him to place his light on what is dead or what's taking your eyes away from him pray and come back to him be comforted by his kindness and his mercy in Jesus and learn to live, to really live to his glory and to your upbuilding. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.